I'd like to direct your attention to is found in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. This is the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, of sapphire, and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Wes Craven, who is the director of the Nightmare on Elm Street movie series, and also more modern, uh, the movie Scream, and its subsequent, uh, uh, what do they call it, series, I guess, (laughs) Um, He said this, horror films don't create fear, they unleash it. 
And what he meant by that is, is horror actually lurks inside all of us. And it lurks already in the hearts of individuals. And movies simply gives vent to these fears. Fears of the unknown, fear of the dark, uh, fear of losing control, fear of supernatural forces. But the greatest thing all men fear and should fear though they do their best to quench it, is the supernatural wrath of a sovereign and holy God. We read in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about who God is because deep down they fear him. Now in movies that might get manifested in fearing other sorts of supernatural forces, but it's all haunting reminder that one day we will have to pay a price for the sins that we commit in this life. And it's this deep lurking fear that will become a reality in the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets. Simple outline to this passage, the fifth trumpet uh, has demonic locusts and the sixth trumpet uh, really is a premonition of of a massive world war. We'll look at the fifth trumpet first. Um, But I want to say in the previous trumpet warnings, judgment uh, was at that time just poured out upon the climate and on the earth. Uh, It was receiving uh, a warning again. It was was bearing uh, the wrath of God, but it was really a warning. Those trumpets were meant to be a warning of the wrath that was to come, that it was going to get increasingly worse. But in these last three trumpet warnings or judgments, the, they're particularly poured out not upon the earth, but upon unbelievers. The two trumpet warnings that we'll look at in this chapter are, are frankly bizarre. And because of that, they're difficult to understand. Now, we can't relate to what's being described. And there are many people just assume they must be needing, we must interpret them symbolically because we have nothing within our experience to relate these things with. I mean, if one were to describe the judgments that are being poured out in this chapter, the demonic locusts and these armies that are described in in the sixth trumpet, it would come off as uh, uh, overly concocted, like the movie Sharknado. Like it's just pushing it a little too much. You're combining too many scary things in one. It just doesn't seem real. And that's one of the reasons many people just think, well, this must be just a symbolic of something else, a symbol of something else. But we need to recognize this is Scripture. This is God's Word. And every word of His proves true. It's real. And so although there is certainly symbolic language used in this chapter, I believe it's actually best to interpret what's going on here as literal things, a literal army of locusts and a literal army inspired by demonic forces. But at the same time, I'd say the description that's given should be understood symbolically. And I say that because of the word, the use of the word like. When it actually describes these locusts or these, these armies and their horses, 
that the word like is used, showing that it's not, he's not saying that, that is what these things are, but this is their appearance, and he's trying to find words to convey what their appearance was like. So although these are literal uh, things being described, their description is very symbolic. It's using symbolic language, I should say. Well, let's look at the fifth, fifth trumpet, begin there. Verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, the, the angel that's being described here, uh, people debate about. Is this a good angel, or is it a bad angel? And there's, there's reason to believe either one, honestly. So the people who believe it's a, it's a, it's a demon is because it's described as falling from heaven. Angels that fall are typically demons. But others believe that the language simply describes the trajectory of his mission. He was once a heavenly angel dwelling in heaven, and he's come down to the earth to unlock the bottomless pit to release this demonic force. At the end of the day, the identity of the angel, whether it's a demon or an angel, it's, it's actually unimportant. Because either way, he's just simply performing God's will. All he does is do what the Lord has asked him to do. He has been given this key to release this demonic locust horde upon the earth. Verse 2, it says, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. This bottomless pit that he has the key to is a place of demonic confinement. Uh, it's, it's in another dimension. It's outside of the space-time continuum. Uh, one could call it hell, but we should differentiate it from the place that's described as the lake of fire later on in the book of Revelation. You might recall in Luke 8.31, the Gerasene demoniac who was possessed by a legion of demons. When Jesus confronted him, uh, the demons pled with him not to cast them into the bottomless pit. They, 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 they understood Jesus had the power to put them in this place of confinement. Revelation 20, verse 3 says that this is where Satan will be confined. Uh, when Jesus establishes his thousand-year reign upon the earth. And after a thousand years, Satan will be released again to stir up another act of rebellion. And then he will be thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 10. Similarly, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, uh, the apostle describes that the demons... Uh, during the day of Noah, were now confined in a place called Tartarus. Second uh, Peter two four in the ESV says this: For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. The word is Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Again, signifying that this is a place of confinement until the final judgment, which will be in the lake of fire. And Jude 6 reflects the same idea. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So I, we should understand this pit, this bottomless pit, as being the, a place of confinement for these demonic beings, a jail for demons. And it should be differentiated from the place of eternal torment, which we know as the lake of fire. Verse 3 tells us that these creatures 
that the angels released were locusts. Now notice it doesn't say they were like locusts. It actually calls them locusts. But we shouldn't simply assume that these are unique subterranean bugs that get released upon the earth because these locusts possess some very unique characteristics. First of all, they don't just originate from beneath the earth, but the bottomless pit, as we had just explained, was the confines of demons. So we know they're really bad. Second, they don't attack the grass and trees and other green things, which locusts typically do. Instead, they avoid those things. And what they attack instead is unbelieving men and women. Those who fail to have the seal of God on their foreheads. They also have some sort of venom or poison that they excrete that causes excruciating pain for five months. But it's not fatal. These are not normal locusts. These are demonic locusts. And it, but it does appear to be the judgment of locusts that the prophet Joel describes that would, be, that would come upon Israel in the day of the Lord. If you flip to Joel chapter 2, Joel speaks of a judgment of locusts that, that had previously taken place in Israel. And warn them that a greater judgment is yet to come. And unless Israel repents, they will experience this judgment in full. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2, he writes this. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All their faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So this locust army is described as even the Lord's army. And it's, it's described in, the way it's described in Joel is very similar to the description given of the demonic host beginning in verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in about. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Well, the description of these demonic locusts is, is meant to be terrifying because they're part animal, but also part human in their appearance. They have human Faces and hair, but they have lion's teeth. 
and wings and tails that sting. They possess an awful combination of the intelligence of humans, but also a razor-sharp bite like lions. The sting of scorpions. They, they also possess wings, which means they can go anywhere they want. And the fact that they are said to have breastplates of armor suggests that they're indestructible. There's nothing you can do to stop them or kill them. The combination of them make, make them worse, really, than the worst science fiction horror creatures that have been created. They're truly terrifying. And they're real. They're true. These things one day will descend upon the earth and attack unbelievers because of their unwillingness to repent from their sin. My boys uh, recently came across a commercial for the movie The Nun. And they were telling me how terrifying just the, the trailer for the movie was. And, and apparently it's just about this demon-possessed nun. But imagine... Hordes of demon-possessed nuns that look like giant grasshoppers that can bite into anything, go anywhere, and inject agonizing poison, and who, by the way, are indestructible. And none of this is imaginary. These real creatures will be released upon the earth. They're not just two hours of frightening horror film. It will be five months of constant pain and fear. Another indicator that they're demonic is the fact that they have a king over them called the destroyer. Remarkably, Proverbs 30 verse 27 states that the locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. But these locusts do have a king, interestingly. And his name is Abaddon or Apollyon. And the, the Greek name is actually similar to the, the name for the Greek god Apollo, who interestingly was sometimes symbolized actually by locusts. He was understood to be the god of pestilence. I happen to believe that most of the pagan gods that people worshipped as idols were based off of, or are based off of actual demons. I get that from 1 Corinthians 10.20, where Paul notes that those who sacrifice to idols are sacrificing to demons. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And he's writing to Greeks who probably are sacrificing to Artemis or Zeus or Apollo. And Paul says they represent demons. So for those of us who enjoy reading Greek mythology and who find themselves rooting for you know, one god over another, it's worth just us pausing and recognize that the god Apollo likely is, is the God who is ruling over this army of demonic locusts, this, this demon. Now, if these five months of terror and physical agony were not enough, there's an even worse horror to come with the blowing of the sixth trumpet in verse 13. And when this sixth trumpet warning is blown, one angel again releases four other angels who had been bound at the river Euphrates. The fact that they're described as being bound suggests that these were demons that were bound. Uh, demons who had previously been prepared specifically for this hour to kill one-third of mankind, we see in verse 15. The significance of the U River Euphrates 
could just simply be um, that that's the, the bound, one of the boundaries of the promised land. And so Israel's been preserved up until this point, until now. Uh, but we could also signify that's just where the armies that are going to be gathered by these demons happen to gather. We don't know. But commentators differ on how we should understand this army. Is it an army of demons or humans? Well, one of the reasons that we should understand this army is demonic is simply because of its size. Verse 16 says it is 200 million strong. Or the ESV says twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's one big army. John actually says he only heard their number, verse 16, because there's no way he could have counted them. It's just too many people. He had to be told their number. Another reason to assume this is a demonic cavalry is because of how the horses are described. Their heads are like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur comes out of their mouths. Well, that's not natural. The horses don't do that. Moreover, their tails are described as being like serpents with heads that wound. Right? Such description of these creatures show that they're not natural but, unlike the locusts, it's interesting that this army is not said to have emerged from the pit. It's only the four demons that, have, that are said to have been bound. Not this army. And this suggests that these demons merely inspire the gathering together of this massive army. And the fact that these are four demons may indicate that there are four armies that actually unite together into one in their warfare. And I, I get this interpretation partly from Revelation chapter 16. If you turn there, beginning of verse 13, it says this. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So there we have demons inspiring and armies to come together for a battle. It would make sense that that's what's happening here in chapter 9. Another reason to believe that these are a human army inspired by demons is because the text says that the horses are not the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur, but rather that it is like that. It's not the horses, but rather it's their breastplates. Right, just the breastplates, not the horses. So uh, the colors of fire, sapphire, and, um, or hyacinth and sulfur are, are red, dark blue, and yellow. So that's the color of the breastplates of the horses. Now, if you're wondering, okay, what kind of nations are there that have that are red, dark blue, and yellow? I did my research. There's about ten. Um, all of which, I mean, really none of which are consequential on the in international affairs, they're all pretty small. But I would tell you one nation, that's Moldova. So keep your eye on Petru. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably not actually referring to um, any national flag and its colors. Uh, more likely what's being signified here by the colors of the breastplates of the horses is they correspond to the destructive powers of uh, fire, which is red, smoke, which is dark blue, and sulfur, which is yellow. These are the things that, again, are coming out of the, the horse's mouths. 
The description of their heads is clearly symbolic, again, because it uses the term like. It doesn't say they had heads of lions, merely that their heads were like lions. Now, I'm not sure what it means except that they unleashed violence because it says fire and smoke and sulfur is what comes out of their mouth. And the use of the word like here could indicate that John is trying to describe something, uh, some sort of technology that really defies his ability to describe. Um, The horses they're riding could refer to some kind of modern weapon. Um, But if so, I'm unaware of what that weapon would be. There's nothing that I know of that adequately fits the description that John is giving here. So who knows? Could be demons, could be a a demon-inspired human army with some sort of technological weapon that hasn't been created yet. But the effect of this army and its weaponry is that that a third of the world's population is wiped out. I mean, the war that this brings about is a war that will make all other world wars, all other wars, whatever they were, look like toddler tantrums. Just consider that right now the Earth's current population is about 8 billion people. Okay, It says a third will be wiped out. So let's assume the population doesn't get much bigger. A third would be 2 to 3 billion people being killed. To put the, the amount of, that casual, of those casualties in context, the New York Times recently estimated that the total number of people killed in wars throughout all of human history Ranges from 150 million to 1 billion. 1 billion at the height. That's still a third of the amount of people that are going to be killed when the sixth trumpet is blown. Like all the wars throughout human history are still a third of the amount of casualties that will be um, killed. With this army. And the amount of death prophesied here is truly unimaginable. And for me, the most difficult aspects of interpreting Revelation, it isn't the discerning, okay, what should be interpreted symbolically or literally, although that's very difficult. It's difficult here. What I find to be the greatest difficulty in interpreting this book is that what's being conveyed in this book is deeply troubling. I mean, unlike other aspects of Scripture that are, that are full of encouragement and hope, what's described here is just awful. It's disturbing. I mean, even, if you, even when studying the subject of sin in Scripture, we can, we can study it, but there's, when, we, when we study even our sin in light of the grace and mercy of God, the study of sin actually becomes a catapult to worship because all the more we realize how merciful and glorious and wonderful our God is. But in Revelation, these judgments are just disturbing because they don't lead people to repentance. Rather, their hearts just get harder and harder. And this, of course, is the point of the chapter as it ends in these words. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, 
Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I mean, we, we want there to be some sort of aha moment when they finally realize what they're doing, that they're fighting against a holy and all-powerful God. That these people will receive these trumpet warnings for what they are. They're warnings that there's greater judgment to come. But that's not what happens. Their sinfulness just gets worse and worse. And their pain gets worse and worse. It's a terrible commentary on man's enslavement to sin. I mean, even with every available reason to repent, they won't do it. Even while they're in the midst of pain and agony, and they can see that these things that have been released upon the earth are not natural, they still refuse to repent. Sinful man cannot help but hate God because worshiping God demands that he no longer worships himself. That's the very thing that keeps them from repenting. See, even This is true even though every man on the face of this earth knows that he's not God. There are some people that act like they are. But every man knows that he's not God, and that's why they struggle with paranoia. That's why they struggle with various obsessions and ambitions. Those, the fact that those things exist prove that a person isn't God. And yet man in his pride refuses to submit and therefore brings this agony on himself. And that's how we need to understand this chapter. Man is choosing for himself to receive the wrath of God because he refuses to repent. He will not listen to the warnings that God has given. Again, these trumpet judgments, they're warnings. God's trying to warn the people that the time is short. They must repent. And the horror director Wes Craven said that the most terrifying thing in the world is the human capacity for evil. And humans can be horrifically evil. But what we see in this book is that Wes Craven was wrong. As awful as human sin can be, God's justice is far more terrible. One of the questions we're faced with in reading this chapter is, well, then should we pity these people? Because they refuse to submit despite all the warnings. They refuse to repent. Should we pity them when they refuse to repent? This is actually one of the questions that's posed to the readers of the Lord of the Rings. Frodo says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf replied, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that died deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it for good or evil before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Consider the tension of Paul in Romans 9 and 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes his fellow countrymen, the Jews, saying that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets they drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
so always to fill up the measure of their sins. The wrath has come upon them at last. He says that about the Jews, his fellow countrymen, but he also says this about them in Romans 9 too. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. See, Paul recognized that like Gollum, his, his countrymen had brought their agony onto themselves. And yet he pitied them immensely because he understood they were spiritually blind. That's why they wouldn't repent. And likewise, we who have been freed from sin like unbelievers, unlike unbelievers, we need to remember that, that we have been freed from what they are enslaved to. And this tension that we feel between loving God's justice and yet at the same time pitying people and loving His mercy is, is, is I believe, a result of the, the work of the Spirit on our hearts. Because we want God's justice to be done. And at the same time, we recognize that mercy is a beautiful thing. I believe God feels a similar tension. Because He possesses a great love for His creatures. And yet an awful anger at the relentlessness and the intensity of their rebellion. It's interesting that in Joel 2, which describes this future judgment, the day of the Lord, that after the, that judgment of locusts falls upon Israel, it says this in verse 18. Then Yahweh became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. God's a God of pity, even still. This chapter is a vivid reminder of the truth. That but for the grace of God, there go I. That quote has actually been attributed to many people in church history. Uh, Richard Baxter, John Bradford, John Newton, George Whitfield, even Sherlock Holmes. In fact, uh, in case you're interested, the, the Sherlock Holmes quote comes from a story entitled The Boscombe Valley Mystery. Where it says, God help us, said Holmes, after a long silence. Why does, such, why does fate play such tricks with poor, helpless worms? I never hear of such a case as this, that he do not think of Baxter's words and say, there but for the grace of God goes Sherlock Holmes. <coughs> and besides Holmes, there's actually good reason to believe that actually all those eminent Christians that this quote is attributed to actually said these words. Because that is the natural propensity of Christians. To recognize that when we see people caught up and fast bound in their sin, making their lives miserable, that could have been us. But research suggests that this quote actually originated with the Puritan martyr John Bradford. Who upon seeing an unbeliever once in a deplorable state said... It is entirely owing that John Bradford is not in that man's condition. He recognized that, that if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me. And likewise, we can all read this chapter and say, but for the grace of God, 
all the horrors that are described in this book would be ours. And that should give us plenty of reason to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand the horrors that actually exist in this world and that even exist out of this world. The work of demons and their plans and even how you use demonic forces to bring about your will. These things are beyond our understanding. And as terrifying as they are, Lord, we have confidence in you. We are confident that you are not just all sovereign, but that you are good. You are just, you are wise, and you are loving. And that is what holds us fast. Even as we read these horrific judgments that will one day take place. Help us, Lord, to be be confident in who you are. So that when we do face and see such horrors upon this earth, we would look to you and not be shaken. We pray these things in Christ's name.